Welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm your host, Natasha Mirosh, an insatiably curious food and travel writer who's toured and tasted her way around more than 60 countries. Join me now as I meet the passionate people who make travelling the world so rewarding and so very delicious. Hi there, thanks for joining me for another episode of Extra Virgin Food and Travel. It sounds a bit like a movie script. A young English woman travelling in India meets a Tibetan man on a hilltop. He'd arrived in the town of Dharamshala by foot, crossing the Himalayas over an extraordinary 24-day journey. The couple fall in love, move to Oxford and start a Tibetan restaurant. My guests today are Yeshi Jampa and Julie Kleeman, who are owners of Taste Tibet Restaurant in Oxford and authors of the recently published Taste Tibet Family Recipes from the Himalayas. We're going to hear not just about life in the highest country in the world, but about the historical and geographical influences on its cuisine and how fate brought together this couple from such different cultures. Julie and Yeshi, thank you for joining me. No, thank you for having us. Julie, you and Yeshi have come from very different cultural backgrounds, but you you chose a career and subsequently to live in places that ultimately led you to meet Yeshi. Can you tell us a little about your background and in particular, what drew you to become interested in this part of the world? So this dates back a long time, which will age me slightly. So in 1992, I visited China for the first time. My sister had been teaching English out there for a year and I was just 17. So I was really a very open book. And I don't think I had any expectations of China. And it was a pretty wild place to visit back then, certainly traveling as we were as independent tourists. So we were not part of a group or anything. And many of the places that we went to that she took us to, she had a little little bit of Chinese at her disposal by then. People had never seen foreigners before. And we were kind of kids, really. So... That was a quite an intense and wild experience that my other sister, who was also part of that party, you know, didn't take to, and she never returned to China. <laughs> but I always loved studying. I love languages. And at that point, I was choosing what to study at university. And I kind of put to one side the European languages that I had been toying with the idea of studying and and went for Chinese. So I did a degree in Chinese for four years, which involved spending a year studying at a university in China, in Qingdao, actually, where the beer is made. And that was my kind of, I guess, the way that I was first interested in Asia. I subsequently did a lot of traveling in Asia. And of course, ultimately, that led to, to my meeting with, with Yeshi. And Yeshi, you're from the eastern part of Tibet. Can you tell us a little bit about what life was like growing up there? Yeah, I'm from eastern part of Tibet. So family is like semi-nomadic and we have lots of animals. And I go with the dad on the mountains six months. We took the yaks on the mountains to move around on the mountains. And then the wintertime we come home. I stay with my family, but it's still being involved when I was young to be involved with animals, help the family, just busy kind of every day, kind of, you know, 
But it's the same kind of a job, but we have so many animals. Mm. So yaks, goats, sheep, cows, horses, mule, and pigs, just so many animals. And then we just yeah, work with the animals. And then, yeah, that's why I never been in school and until I was 19. Wow. So, yeah. And you learned to, to read and write quite late as well, didn't you, when you went to school? Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, just near being because parents are not that happy to send to in his children to school. Mm. Much better keep them home and look after the family and uh, look after the animals. Mm. And um, because they have some reasons. Uh, they're in the schools, uh, only Chinese. So that's why the parents are not that happy to send oh. children to school. Yeah, I understand. So we don't want to learn Chinese, yeah. Sure. And you left Tibet when you were, was it 19? Yeah, when I was 19, I left across the Himalaya to to Nepal, to India. That's a, you make so, it sound like it's just a bit of a, a walk down the road. <laughs> we crossed the mountains in Himalaya for 24 days mm. and we're walking a day and night. It's just really scary, but we managed to to India. Amazing. And then I went to India to study Tibetan and English. I studied in India. And you were living in a monastery there where you were helping to take care of an elderly man. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. In the monastery, I have like a kind of related my grandfather. Yeah. He, he died and he's a monk, but he, uh, then I look after him. But, you know, that I left the school and he's kind of old and I help him. But it's still all the monks can help him. But mm. he wanted me to help him from front to back. And after him, he says he wants to stay with me. And I just love to look after him. He's so good and just... It's so easy to look after him. Oh, that's lovely. And then I really enjoy in the monastery. It's just my best life. Just mm. all the people are so happy and just busy studying. And and then, yeah, so people are really, really positive and just happy. Mm. Sounds like a very peaceful life. You were cooking there in Tibetan culture. Who is traditionally the cook at home? Is it the man or the woman? Uh, most like the, my mom cooks a lot, and uh, but also like involved with like meat kind of that probably dad cooked as well. So it's mm. not that really different. Depending mm. on the families who is busy, and it's just not that different. T- traditional way, equal, same. Oh, that's good, Julie. You and Yeshi met in two thousand and nine. How did that come about? <laughs> was very uh, fortunate meeting. So I, at that time, I was living in China after I studied China. I was in the UK for a few years, and then I went to live in Beijing. I was the, the chief editor of the Oxford Chinese Dictionary. So this is how we ended up in Oxford, ultimately. But while I was editing the di- dictionary, I was living in Beijing, but also sidelining in some NGO work, and that's what took me to India, I went to evaluate a, a project there. And at the end of that work trip, I went to Dharamsala, which is a small village in the foothills of the Himalayas on the Indian side. And it's where the Dalai Lama now has his home in exile and a very kind of modest 
temple and while I was there I think it was just the second day that I was there I just took a walk on the kind of low mountain path and I bumped into Yeshi we were both taking pictures of the same monkeys Himalayan langurs they're called so they're not those kind of well very unromantic <laughs> red bummed monkeys that steal a sandwich they were these very kind of majestic vegetarian large beasts really that I was a bit kind of um, fearful of, but yes, she knew these these particular monkeys to be actually quite timid and shy and to get a good picture, which is what we were both trying to do. We were armed with cameras. You needed to, there was no harm in going a bit closer. So I always remember that the first thing I said to him was, was that's a good idea. Because yeah. <laughs> he was stepping in a little bit closer to get the better shot. Anyway, we ended up walking the same um, road and having some tea together, and then, and then that evening, yeah, she cooked me cooked for me in his very modest room, and after which I was pretty much sold. <laughs> what a great story for your children. Yeah, I think often we lose sight of that. And probably the kids do too, but there's lots of good stories there. Mm. And your first taste of Tibetan food didn't actually rock your world, did it? Why was that? And how did that change after you met Yeshi? Yeah, I, I can't remember the first time I ever ever had a kind of so-called Tibetan meal, but I certainly travelled in Tibetan parts of, of China quite often before I actually moved to Beijing and made China my home because I visited China many times but I, I think I, I always I ate off tourist menus, you know, before I could speak good Chinese, and and in these parts it's difficult to to get a good authentic meal. So I was often in restaurants that served yak burgers or you know yak this or that or something that really didn't hit the mark and and definitely wasn't authentic. So I, like many other travellers, to those those parts did not get a, have a good experience of Tibetan food until I met Yeshi. And as I mentioned, you know, his setup was extremely kind of sparse. He lived in a, he shared one small room with a friend and the kitchen was in the corner of the room. In India, this was where where we met and he just had two gas rings to play with and, and very little in the way of equipment, even refrigeration. So that evening when he made me, it was a hand pulled noodle soup, beef tantu. I couldn't believe really what could be produced from such a simple kitchen using so few ingredients. And yeah, that was definitely an, an eye opener and I wanted to know more. You know how to impress the girls, hey, Yeshi? <laughs> yeah. Come back to my room for some hand pulled noodles. <laughs> I think that means also she wants like kind of a hot food and then, but in India so sometimes it's like a little bit lacking with hot food mm. because India is just like cold and and she loves I think drinks hot water I'm a very well. cold person yes she always <laughs> says to me I would never survive you know if we were to move back to bed <laughs> and, and it was a November evening and yes India obviously is, is usually most parts of India are very hot most mm. of the year round but where he was living was quite high altitude and and it was freezing. Those rooms are not designed a bit like Australia. Mm. You know, my experience of Australian winter is the same. You know, the, the houses are not designed to keep you no. warm. And no. so, you know, then I then I understood why Ugg boots are so big in Australia. <laughs> a, little bit, a little bit the same in the, in India. You know, the yeah, this 
you really freeze yeah. come come winter time. The temperatures are not that low, but the buildings are not designed to keep no. warm. So yes, I think I think what he did in that moment was it wasn't just a kind of you know something on the lips. It was it was a that soup just gave me a kind of a warm embrace. Oh. You know, it, it it warmed my whole body, fingers to toes, oh, and your heart as well. By the sound of it. Well, clearly. (laughs) (laughs) That's so romantic. Julie, what is Tibetan food? I think the only Tibetan dishes I know, Momo, the dumplings, and I've Mm. heard of yak butter tea. And I have to say, I haven't tried it. It's not very adventurous of me, but in in the book somewhere you were talking about rancid rancid yak butter tea, and it doesn't sound appealing to me, I have to say. So the, you know, the tea gets a really bad rep, and unfortunately for many people, that's their only experience of, uh, of Tibetan food and drink. And the reality is that ref- refrigeration hasn't reached many parts of Tibet yet. And so yak butter, which is much better consumed fresh, as as is everything. And, you know, when we vis- visited Yeshi's family and and drunk yak butter which is fresh it's incredibly smooth and creamy and delicious it is your tea is not experienced in that way in all parts of tibet Mm. and tibetan people get quite used to the taste of butter that's gone slightly off but as visitors to the region without that experience it can leave literally a very kind of bitter (laughs) taste in the mouth Mm. So we hope that uh, by, well, obviously the recipe in the book is not for yak butter tea because we don't have yak butter at our disposal here, but Mm. but butter tea can be made just as well with cow's butter. And we really hope that people will give that a go and and realise how deliciously creamy a drink that can be. Mm. And I mean, it's more of a broth than than tea as we know it. If you think that many people are living at very high altitude and they need food and drink that's going to warm the hands as well as the bellies you're talking often also especially for nomads they're consuming food with quite a high fat content they need that Mm. for warmth uh, and survival really so Tibetan food is is designed to to keep you warm and Mm. is characterized by often those kind of one one pot dishes like noodle soups many kind of soups broths stews um, that will comfort and, and warm. But in Tibetans, we we know how to we use the ingredients and the fresh as possible because we don't have the fridge kind of that. But it's mm. just fresh is much tastier and uh, it's good for us. Mm. Oh, yeah, I think you know we are familiar with the concept of you know eat locally, eat what is locally available. That is likely to be what is best for us but you know, tibetan people have traditionally always lived that way and a kind of proof of that concept i mentioned that nomads at high altitude will consume food with a high fat content that is that is all that is available and it turns out to be exactly what they need at lower altitude tibetan people mm. uh, where they're able to grow crops and especially in yeshi's village they're quite they're in the valley and they've got two growing seasons in a year and sometimes more fruit and vegetables than they know what to do with. Mm. The diet is much more varied. And, and again, that turns out to be what people at that kind of altitude need. So I think what she's trying to say is that it's, it's very important to eat seasonally, eat locally. And, you know, these are not just kind of in Tibet, they are how people live. I mean, his family are completely self-sufficient. They might swap 
vegetables with somebody in the, the next valley or seed varieties just for, for a little bit of fun. Um, and because, it's, you know, they'll grow slightly differently, provide a slightly different taste. But basically his family, although there are now people traveling in with, with all kinds of exciting products that's been grown elsewhere, are not yet buying into that. It's never how they have eaten. And in order to preserve good health, they consider, and most persons consider, that to, to stick with what you yourself have grown or someone in the next valley has been able to grow is, is definitely the best one forwards. Mm, and is the food spicy, hot? In of itself, no, not really. So very, very simple. But Tibetan people usually, almost always, I would say, have on hand a chilli dip called sepen, which is made from hot chilli and what we what we call Sichuan peppercorns. Uh, which is that very kind of tongue-numbing peppercorn that actually grows widely across Tibet as well as Sichuan inside China. Mm. And and we'll kind of add that to dishes. Really, I know at my local Tibetan restaurant, meals are taken at a low table on the floor. Is that how Tibetans traditionally eat? Can you tell us a little bit about the tradition behind sharing a meal in Tibet? Yeah, sharing is key. You the word sharing and and that's such an important part of the experience so meals are uh, prepared as a group and and eaten in large groups families live together and eat together and traditionally there was no table and Tibetan people are very comfortable eating without a table but these days yeah it was just a near the fire and sit down uh, on the loft love follow and just eat together and share together and mm. uh, that's the very traditional yeah the fire is going to be the, the place of greatest warmth mm. and comfort in the home. And it's often where people will bed down as well. So you don't even have to move after yeah. you've finished your meal. And the fire is for the lights and it looks like a TV. So, <laughs> and we cook on top. So that's what we need. So just, yeah, we are still um, sometimes I just miss and they can fire here. I do have some fire, but it's not like the same. <laughs> no. We have like a... In, Sitting by the wood, and you know, the just where we are from, so we have so many oak trees, and like this is very quite, yeah, so quite slow burning logs. Yeah. But in your home now, there are low coffee table style pieces as well out there and sometimes the food is spread out there and, and people sit on on benches alongside and yeah. everybody has their own bowl so traditionally mm. um, you would have a bowl for life so this is made out of um, usually hand carved by by the family itself where those skills exist which they do your brother's very and your dad's yeah, very yeah, good yeah, like their own bowls and wow. and then you would um put into your bowl only as much as you know you could eat so there's nothing left in it at the end and and once you're done you give it a quick lick clean and then tuck it back into the fold of your cloak the tr- traditional tibetan cloak is called a uh, chuba and you can hide all kinds of, of things in there including the bowl and so if you're on the move you just you just tuck that in and then when you you need to, to have some tea or some some food you'd get that out there's no washing up has to be done wow and we get excited about having pockets in our dress here <laughs> you should see the chobas really an amazing <laughs> garments that can kind of be worn in all ways because 
Because in the daytime in Tibet, I mean, many people imagine Tibet to be a, a place that is freezing at all times, but actually it's very high altitude. So there's that proximity to the sun. And even mm. in midwinter, it's very warm during the day. It's only the evenings when the temperatures really plummet. So during the daytime, you're wearing this big, heavy cloak, but you'll tie it around your your waist because you're probably going to be in your shirt sleeves. Mm. And then you just and then you just kind of tuck it up as it gets cold. It's got very long sleeves to really kind of hide your hands in. Mm, doesn't sound very slimming. <laughs> <laughs> it can look fabulous. The women look fabulous. Also, the, in the traditional in Tibetan, I think the most like a n- nomadic. That's why they, 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 they can be easy to go to other place. And mm. like, you know, that's kind of warm and you can sleep, you know, it's just... Yeah, your cloak is also your like yeah. blanket. Kind of day, isn't it? You don't need anything else. Mm. So very practical. What about if I'm eating at a Tibetan table? Is, is this anything that's taboo or or things that I shouldn't say? You've said that you should just put what fits in your bowl. Are there any other customs that I need to be aware of? Well, there is a real reverence for for food in Tibet, and even people who have left the village life and made homes for themselves in the cities. Still have very close ties to their rural roots, so everybody knows well and appreciates the efforts involved to bring food to the table. And almost every meal time begins with a prayer that is a reflection of that. That people give thanks. Um, essentially, there are different different prayers according to different contexts. And if you're in a monastic setting, the prayers are are longer and and more complex. Mm. But um, we do that at home still. And I know that um, for Yeshi, it's a kind of sacred time, a meal time. Mm. And when we have eaten with his family in Tibet, meal times are very quiet affairs. And that's something that he is keen to reproduce at home. It doesn't always happen. And he he gets quite cross with the kids when they they muck about at, mm. at dinner or bring toys or usually it's books <laughs> that they smuggle in. Those kind of things have no place at the dinner table. I was very surprised in Tibet how quiet mealtimes are because I spent many years myself in China and mealtimes in China are very kind of <laughs> chatty, animated affairs. But in Tibet, it's the absolute opposite is, is silent. So you'll be eating with a very big group of people usually, but the only noise that you can hear is noise, well, very kind of quiet in, in noise of enjoyment of the food. That's interesting. And Tibetans eat with what kind of implements? Well, these days, um, chopsticks have made their way in, but mm. um, traditionally it would be with hands or with spoons. Mm. And, and um, do you eat Tibetan food at home generally? Uh, yes, uh, always. Mm. So, yeah, and then my children are still, yes, they're born in the UK, but still they're both said just where the children say they, they were Tibetan, but then they never say the English. Mm. So, and yeah. probably in large part that is to do with the way that we eat at home, and certainly their favourite dishes are all Tibetan dishes. So when, yeah, she's not at home, I do, you know, I do make a, a shepherd's pie or a, or a pasta bolognese. <laughs> but generally speaking, there's a lot of um, stir fries and, and soups and stews and, well, noodles. Yeah. <laughs> do you cook at home, Yeshi? 
yeah, or if I have ten, um, almost I cook. Hmm. He's often out at the restaurant, but when he he is at home, I mean, that's a way that he unwinds, even though that's what he does for work. (laughs) He's, uh, you know, he finds it very relaxing. And of course, if he's cooking, then he knows that he's going to enjoy what he's eating. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Julie, it's it's very difficult, I believe, for you and Yeshi to visit Tibet, isn't it? When did you actually meet his family and what did they think of, of him marrying an English girl? Mm, that's such an interesting question because people often ask me, you know, what my family thought of me marrying um, this Tibetan <laughs> nomad. <laughs> um, and even me myself, I didn't think too much about what his family would think of him marrying a foreigner but it was the first time that anybody in his village had ever married a foreigner and and that's to include um you know nobody had even married a, a, a chinese man or a chinese woman mm. so you know i might as well have been an alien from outer space really <laughs> and you know there was no way that i could communicate with his family mm. food um it was definitely the kind of leveler you know something that we could do together without actually sharing a spoken language but um we first met them in 2016 after yeshi got a british passport and he himself hadn't seen his family for 17 years so it's actually a moment that we both of us find hard to describe there aren't really words to Mm. cover what that looked like or felt like i mean i could barely breathe in that situation and it this you know wasn't my story and my family Mm. It must so, have been very, yeah, very emotional. Massive. Well, as you brought it up, what did your family think of you marrying <laughs> Yeshi? Well, my my family didn't meet Yeshi until he arrived in the UK and I was already six months pregnant. Oh. <laughs> uh, they were really worried. And I, and I always said to them that um, that they would understand when they met him. And, you know, my, my dad and I, I would say he's the one who was most worried um, likes likes to tell how you know he knew within minutes that everything was fine. No, <laughs> as soon as they finally got that opportunity, I think so he he thinks I can't get a job, and mm. uh, he worried that I think. Mm. And you know my English is not great, and that's he worried. I think. Mm. I guess it's that's normal for most fathers, isn't it, to worry about their, their, their daughters <laughs> even when they're growing up. Yeah. Right. Well, tell us about you, you. You both have the Tibetan restaurant Taste Tibet in Oxford. Tell us about what led to the decision to open a Tibetan restaurant. Well, for for Yeshi, as he mentioned, you know he didn't speak great English and he doesn't have any kind of formal qualifications. So when he arrived in in the UK, he was going to struggle to to find work through normal so called normal channels. Mm. And to begin with. Um, he looked after our son and when I took maternity leave for a second time well by that time he'd already been saying for years he wanted to to start his own food business I mean food has always been his passion and I think it was a great disappointment to him when he arrived in the UK um, eating out not just eating out actually but just being able to to source good raw ingredients you know he felt like um he had something to share with people here he knew how to cook how to um how to nourish people Mm. and 
there was a market close to our home where he'd often go to buy his fruit and vegetables. And there were a couple of street food stalls there at the time. Now it's become a bustling kind of world food market. But at the time that he started his store there during my second maternity leave, it was still not known for its um, just only one street stores. food. Is mm. that right? Just yeah, one, yeah. yeah. Once, so one just uh, street food there, and the food is not that good. <laughs> and uh, and just still people are buying. And I thought, you know, I can do much better than that. Mm. And then I started uh, since there. Mm. And uh, we were in the market for many many years, and also. Yeah. Um, took us all to to music festivals, big and small, and we still do that now. But in 2020, during a lockdown, actually <laughs> November 2020, we opened our first fixed site, and wow. um, and that's been wonderful to just have somewhere where we can host people and really take care of people in ways that go beyond a box of food. Interesting time to open and quite challenging, I would imagine. How did uh, the people of Oxford receive uh, Taste Tibet? I can't imagine there's too many Tibetan other Tibetan restaurants in Oxford. There's a few now. There's a few now, yeah. We we created and then just few ideas they got. Uh-huh. But yeah, first, first we begin in a market store, in a first only myself, and then... I can't manage and I need more people and more people and then just just unbelievable we just successful and then yeah we just need to change the market it's just too too busy and, and then more stores that we have and then we just open the restaurant and because we know that we have really good customers mm. so so we're not worried. Oxford is a very international place. There's people from all over the world here, so many people didn't need any introduction to Momos. Mm. You know, there's uh, many people from across Asia studying here, and uh, people are generally a well-travelled bunch. Mm. And we just had a lot of support right from the beginning in all the different forms that Taste Tibet has taken over the years. So although it does sound a bit crazy to have opened our place during the lockdown, we had every confidence that, that it would work, and it did. Mm. Apart from the food, is it a way of introducing people to Tibet? Because I imagine, you know, not a huge number of people have been there. Absolutely. That's, you know, really a big driving force for us and um, a challenge that we still face. People who've been enjoying our food for years still bring their friends and say, you know, this is the delicious Nepalese food oh. I've been telling you about. Mm. You know, we... Um, we hope to use food and, and the experience of the restaurant or food stall to introduce unique aspects of Tibetan culture and help people to place Tibet, to put it on the map. It's a, a very big um, source of motivation for us. Do you um, participate in any kind of political um, action around Tibet? We still have family, as described, back home in Tibet, so that's tricky for us. And when writing the mm. book, that was also um, something difficult, you know, in order to cover the the, the story of Tibet as a whole, but, mm. um, but not get too deep into that stuff was a fine balancing act yeah. <laughs> and continues to be in many ways. I can, I can imagine. I also imagine it was quite challenging, Julie, for you. You talk about Yeshi 
um, not even knowing of the existence of, of cookbooks before. And um, how did you get those recipes down? Well, you know, we wanted to, I'd wanted to write a book for years. And yes, because cookbooks are a fairly new idea to Yeshi, I think it took him a long time to warm to the idea uh, or understand why we would want to put his recipes um, on paper. It's just not something he himself has ever seen within his culture. Um, but we often say to each other now, you know, even if in, in years to come, the, the book is no longer a big seller. You know, here's an amazing record for our kids of all the, the dishes that dad has cooked. And that in itself, you know, small steps towards preserving that that culture. But, and then those traditions. But certainly the process of getting the recipes down on, on paper was tricky. So he never uses weights and measures. And we had to go and buy measuring jugs and spoons and things for the first time. <laughs> and in the, the first few recipes he would make, he would cook to camera basically. And I would take um, his videos short and long away and write them up and, and run to him here and there where something was unclear for clarification. But certainly in the first few videos, you know, he was, he was tending to cook in his normal way of chucking in this and that, and he had to be pinned down. <laughs> that wasn't very easy for him or for me. No, it would be quite frustrating. I imagine if you're used to cooking in that sort of freestyle way to um, to be asked how much how much that is you, that you're putting in and, um, yeah, but mm. you've done a fantastic job. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. And, Yeshi, you must be very proud to be able to share your cuisine and culture with so many people. Yeah, it's just quite a rare, you know, now just like, you know, it's just some people from Australia and America, people are just cooking and share us the photos and my food. It's just quite weird. We just um, can't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it, so. it's, it has travelled to the other side of the world. I'm sitting here with it on my desk. And it, as I said, it's an absolutely beautiful book. I love the stories woven through and the recipes and the gorgeous photos. So congratulations to you both for producing it. Thank you. We so enjoyed putting it together. Uh, and for our Australian listeners, Taste to Bet, Family Recipes from the Himalayas is published by Murdoch Books and available at all good bookstores. And for everyone else around the world, perhaps try Amazon. And if you're in Oxford, make sure that you call into the restaurant and say hi to Julie and Yeshi. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Julian Yeti. It's been such a, a privilege to talk to you and best of luck with the restaurant and the book and uh, hope the family back home stays well. Thank you so much. Thank you. thank you for having us. Well, that's it for this episode of Extra Virgin Food and Travel. Thank you as always for joining me and wherever you are in the world, bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. You can get more great food and travel inspiration, including stories, recipes, reviews, and more on our website, www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com. You can also follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or email us at extravirginfoodandtravel at gmail.com. If you haven't already, go to Apple, Spotify or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to download and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until we meet again, bon voyage and bon appétit.